Well, first of all, I'd love to say that we are so glad to be here. Uh, we have looked forward to the evening. We have always enjoyed coming. The times we have uh, had that opportunity to come and be with this congregation, and we really do appreciate being asked to come. I know you have you have had a good week from all I've been told, and, and um, knowing this group and knowing the ones you've had, I believe that's right, that you've had a good week. We've already had a good night. Uh, we have enjoyed a, a great meal over at the Gwent, and, and uh, we have enjoyed good singing and praying together. It's been a good, good evening already. I want to talk to you about something tonight that, that I think is just um, really needed. It's needed in the religious environment that we are in. I think it's needed for our people as far as being reminded of some things that some of this may, may seem like uh, it's, it's uh, kind of basic, but if it does, that's a good thing that, for what I want to talk about tonight. Because tonight, what I would like for us to consider uh, is something really simple. In fact, that's the first word, and that's the main word we're going to consider. It's simple New Testament Christianity. And we're going to really focus on that first word, simple. And this is a sermon that, that has meant a lot to me, and, and uh, others seem to have benefited from the information that kind of put together in this because it reminds us of some things. I, I know that when I was growing up, I just use this to illustrate what I'm trying to say. When I was growing up, I was very blessed to be brought up in the church. I, I wish that my parents could be here tonight. We have recently moved them in with us in Lawrenceburg, and I'll say that's been interesting. i just say, say that. Uh, uh, but I've got uh, great parents, and uh, when I was raised uh, coming up, you know, going to church was not something you thought about. It's just something you did. Now, that decision long ago, there never was a question at all. On, on Sunday morning, it, you know, if, if you're sitting around on Sunday morning trying to decide if you're going to go or not, then that is not a good place to be. It's what we did, and I'm sure it's that way uh, for most of you. But, but what I noticed so growing up, as I was raised in the church, I noticed as I would talk to my friends that there were things that, that they would talk about doing where they went to church. I said, well, we don't do that. And I didn't really at the time understand why we didn't do various things that others around us were doing. But as I got older, I come to understand that there are some real differences between the Lord's church, and what we were seeing around us. And, and of course, as I got older and I studied and I learned more of my own, I come to really understand it and appreciate it. Because really it should be simple. It should be simple. Uh, the Lord didn't intend to design some system that is so confusing and so hard to, to uh, get your hands on and, and people to make really such a mess out of it. It was really designed to be simple. And so when we think about simple New Testament Christianity, you think, well, why can't we just do this? You know, one, one thing about the word simple. Simple does not mean easy. I could tell you, for instance, I could tell you, let me tell you how that, that losing weight is simple. Okay? And, and some might look and say, really? Yeah. But really, losing weight is simple. All you've got to do, this works almost every time, all you've got to do is to burn more calories than you take in and you'll lose weight. It's simple. But that doesn't mean it's easy, does it? And I think 
to be fair, with simple New Testament Christianity, it is simple. The problem is, it's sort of getting man out of the way and just do things like God very simply sets forth in His Word. So with that said, let's, let's look at some very basic things to get us started. Think of the word simple. Jesus said, among other things, He would say that He has... Um, he came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, the Lord came to do many different things, but that was primarily His, his goal. I'm, I'm here to seek and save that which was lost. But then what do you do with those saved people? Well, it's really very simple. First of all, He said, I'm going to build my church. That's what I, I've come to seek and save that which was lost, but I've come to build my church. And that church had a very key role in this. So he would say in, in uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Remember, he came to seek, seek and save that which was lost. And so we find that the Lord said, I'm going to build my church. Nothing's going to stop me from doing that. Not death itself. Which, of course, is what happened. But then we kind of fast forward, not really long at all, in fact, only maybe some ten days after he ascended back into heaven, we find on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that about 3,000 people gladly received the word. And they were baptized. Well, what did the Lord do? In verse 47 it says, "What well, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so the Lord said, I've, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. I'm going to build my church, and that's where the saved are going to be. I'm going to put them in the church. Well, another way that he would describe that would be his body. I'm going to make them part of me. I've come to save them, and I'm going to build my church, and that's that's who they're going to be. They're going to be my church, my body. Well, that's really pretty simple. I'm I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build one church. I'm going to build a lot of churches, just one. And that's where the saved are going to be. That's where I'm going to put them. I'm going to add them to that. Well, the Lord knew that he was going to leave. And so he's not just going to leave and his work just kind of be left to whomever. He, He chose some men to carry out his mission. He chose some men that come to be known as apostles. And so he would say to his apostles in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Now you go into all the world and you preach this good news, this gospel to every creature. Now he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe, well, they'll be condemned. And so that's pretty simple, you know, pretty straightforward. You go to everybody, go to all the world. Now, that was a pattern even to that going, but basically you go to all the world. You preach the gospel. If they believe, they're baptized, they're saved. But what did he say he would do? Those saved, I'm going to put in my church. And that's what he will continue to do. Well, now, what do you do? The Lord's gone. He's left his apostles in charge. Well, how do do people do? What, What is it they do next, you might say? Well, we're told in places like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be perfect or may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the Lord didn't leave us with no instructions. He didn't leave His church, His saved people, with no idea of what to do next. He put His apostles in charge. They are being uh, uh, reminded of the Lord's teaching. They're being taught new things by the Holy Spirit. And so it says, your Scriptures will be your guide. And when you notice that, it says you're going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does that leave out? Does it leave anything out, any good work at all out, if it tells us every good work? You know, that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Well, the Scriptures then would be our guide to tell us what to do. But something else the Lord was concerned about. (coughs) The Lord was concerned that His followers, His believers, that they be one. Can you imagine if you knew the next day that you were going to suffer the most cruel death imaginable. You think, what would be on your mind? Well, the night before Jesus died, before he was arrested, he's talking to his father in John chapter 17. One of the things that he was very concerned about as he was praying, he says to his father, now I, I don't pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Talking about us all the way down to now. And what he was concerned about is that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that the world may um, believe that you sent me. And so the Lord was very concerned about this. So much so that on that very night he was betrayed. This was on his mind. We'll come back to this passage later. We find as as the apostles now, remember, they're the ones left in charge. They're the ones that are to go into all the world, present this good news, this gospel. They were concerned about this too. In fact, when you would see it kind of, the the spirit of division kind of rear its ugly head, they'd be the first to say, no, you don't go there. And so when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he had heard some things. The household of Chloe had told him about some problems they were having. And so he would say in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, So now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. See, Paul could not have expressed that in any stronger language that I can think of First of all, he said, I plead with you, brethren. Like, please, brethren, listen to me. And then he added, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You just don't get stronger than that. And his concern was all this division that had started to, to come up within the church. He said, don't, don't do that. And then later in that same book, in chapter 4 and verse 6, he tells them that, He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may, that you may um, learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. He says, what you need to learn to do, don't think beyond what is written. Remember what was said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's your guide. thoroughly equipped you for every good work. Now you need to be one and you need to learn, don't Just don't think beyond what you can find in the Scripture, beyond what is written. So they were concerned about that. The Lord was concerned. The apostles were concerned. The Holy Spirit was concerned. 
Because the Holy Spirit would very explicitly say, you know, there's going to come a time they're just not going to let the Scriptures just be their guide. They're not going to, to uh, consider the fact that the Scriptures provide us to everything that we need. And they're not going to learn not to think beyond what is written. Because the Spirit would say there's going to come a falling away. In fact, Paul would say to that young preacher Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some would depart from the faith, giving heed to deceitful, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And, and he's saying some things, as, some for instances, why they'll forbid to marry, commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Sometimes people, I think, are too lax or, or think too little about false teaching or script, uh, teaching that's not what is written. But here he says, while they're giving heed to, deceit, to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Oh, what, that, the modern mind would say, oh, that must be awful. What, what terrible things must that be? But then look at the examples. Why they're going to forbid to marry and command to abstain from food. Why we can't put false teaching on the level that the Lord did. It's, it's bad. Whatever it is, it's not good. It's not what, where we need to be. And in case Timothy missed it with the first letter, he says in the second letter to Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, Timothy preached the word. Be instant, in season. Uh, well, if it preach the word, be ready, this version says. Uh, be instant, uh, in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Well, why is he so emphatic about that to Timothy? He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they, they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The Spirit was very concerned about that. Paul was very concerned uh, about it to say to Timothy in both letters to it. The, the Holy Spirit says there's going to come a falling away. Sadly, we find that it happened. It happened. And what I want to do now is, is give us a little kind of walk through time to see that the very things the Holy Spirit warned about did happen. And so we think about that, remember the word simple. Simple. Simple New Testament Christianity. We go back to the beginning. Somewhere around A.D. 33. Now, I learned A.D. 33. Later I'm told maybe it's A.D. 29. You know, if you look at which calendar you, you look at. But somewhere around A.D. 33, the Lord was crucified. And it was at that time, on the day of Pentecost, that he established his one church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he did that. In fact, we saw already the saved were added to it. So we know he built his church, his one church. It was very simple. Just had one. But as history unfolds, we start seeing something happen. You know, Christianity went through a time of persecution. And then it went through a time of peace. 
And, and then it went through a time of being recognized as the state religion in the 300s. And you think, oh, that's a good thing. It's not being persecuted anymore. Really did end up being such a good thing overall. Around 325, the emperor said, all, all you church leaders need to get together. And so they did. And I don't know who the leaders were. I don't remember that those details. But what they did, they came up with a statement of beliefs. Because there were some had started teaching that Jesus Christ himself was not deity. And there were some other teachings too. And so they wrote out a statement of belief. And they were told, you will sign this statement or else you'll be kicked out of the church. And so the Nicene Creed became the very first document that was added to the Bible. And, and they had good intentions, I'm persuaded. They, they were trying to combat some very destructive teaching, but they opened the door that has to this day not been closed. And that is, people seem to think we need something other than the Bible. And so the Nicene Creed came about in 325. Well, as history unfolds, we find that the, the church is further and further evolving and changing and becoming something that's not found in Scripture to the point that in 607, we find that they've, they kind of got their, their uh, hierarchy to a point and at the very top, they said, that's the Pope. He is the head of the church on the earth. And so that's sort of recognized as a dating for the Roman Catholic Church around 607. Well, that went on for a while, and, further, and a lot of other things were happening uh, as well as far as um, practices you won't find in Scripture. But then in 1054, something called the Great Schism happened. And what happened was that there were five cities in the, in the Catholic Church world that were trying to be the seat of power for the church. It, it come down to two cities, Constantinople and Rome. They could not resolve it, and so the church split. And so the great schism was when the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox went their separate ways, all because they couldn't agree on the seat of power. There were some doctrinal differences as well, but that's basically uh, what history tells us. Well, then we, we go a little bit further down the road. We go through the Middle Ages. We go through uh, the Dark Ages and some awful things that were happening uh, in history and what the, the persecutions that the church was placing on different people. But we come to the 1500s. And there was a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a priest. And Martin Luther could see that, that the Catholic Church needed some real reforming. Now that was his idea. Let's reform the Catholic Church. And the straw that broke the camel's back, you might say, was to do with the selling of indulgences. See, if you, if you were going to sin, you just give the priest some money and you, you'd have an indulgence. Uh, maybe you had sin. Well, you'd give the priest some money and you could be forgiven of those. And so it was a way really to appeal to the flesh and, and uh, soothe your conscience and the Catholic Church was raising money. But then they started building these great cathedrals that we still see to this day in Europe. And they were strapped for money. And so they needed to sell more things. And so what they decided was, what if you had a loved one in purgatory? You can get them out. 
Well, at first you might say, well, what is purgatory? Well, that's another teaching that involved that's like you're not good enough to go to heaven or bad enough to go to hell, and there's an in-between state, kind of seeing which way you're going to go. Well, if you want to get your loved one out of there, you pay the right sum of money and the priest to get them out. Well, that was just it for Martin Luther. He nailed his 95 theses, his statements of, of wanting to debate these and reform these in the Catholic Church. I'm going to reform the Catholic Church, he thought. Well, they excommunicated him. And we have the Lutheran Church develop and evolve and come to the forefront around 1520. Now, Luther, to his credit, said, don't call yourself Lutherans, but they, but they did. One of the things that Luther... Um, reacted to from the Catholic Church. They believed in salvation by works, and Luther said, oh no, it's salvation by faith alone. Of course, the Scriptures would teach us in James 2 and verse 24, it's, no, that's not right. It's not by faith alone. You're justified by works and not by faith alone. But that's one of the things that Luther taught. Well, then history goes on just a little bit further, and we find another branch to split off here on our chart. And that would be the Episcopalians. King Henry VIII was king of England, and he was married to Catherine. And Catherine had the, made the mistake of having these baby girls. Well, he wanted a boy. He wanted a boy to have an heir to the throne. He wanted a male heir. And so he decided, I need to get rid of Catherine, get me another wife, and she'll give me a son. Now, they didn't know at that time that it's the male that determines the sex of the child and not the, not the wife. But anyway, he wants to get rid of her, so he, he petitions the Pope. Well, politics and family often kind of get mixed up. The Pope happened, um, let's say, the, the, uh, the king, rather, the emperor of Rome, was the nephew to Catherine. And, and, and he says to the Pope, now, Aunt Catherine, don't let her husband divorce her. And so the Pope says, no, I, I'm not going to give you an annulment of your marriage. And so King Henry says, well, I'm going to take my toys and go home. I'm going to start my own church, and I'll get my divorce. And that's what he did, and he married Anne Boleyn. Well, our point is, another branch has come about. The Episcopalian, or the Church of England, or the Anglican, uh, depending on where, where you are. Well, not long after that, 1536, another group emerges and they believe that um, you've got these pres- you ought to be governed by these presbyters, so they called them Presbyterian. And we'll just step forward in history just a little bit further, and we have a man named John Smith, and he is coming along, and he was heavily influenced by the Mennonites. And he come to believe that instead of uh, sprinkling of infants, that you ought not to do that. And I, I agree with that. The Bible doesn't support that. And so he baptized himself by pouring water over his head. And But then he develops a little bit further in his understanding. He said, no, that's not the way you ought to be baptized. You ought to be immersed. And I think that's that's right. And so he started teaching that baptism ought to be done by immersion. And, of course, the Bible supports that. Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 3, that baptism is a burial. It's a covering with water. And so he started. He came to the New World, and he started preaching this, and it became known as the Baptist in, in various forms. They, have the, uh, uh, they generally accept the Wilcox, um, no, Hiscox, uh, standard... Manual for Baptist Churches. 
One of the interesting comments about that and that manual that's on page 22 is this, that it said, it, and I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote, but it said at one time baptism was the very door to the church, but now it's different. But wh- why is it different? You know, who, who changed the Bible? But that's the statement found in, in their manual. Well, we, we leave then the Baptists in 1607. We go a little bit further down the road and we come to uh, a denomination that had a very interesting start and it, it was kind of fully developed by 1739. There were some who um, were not happy with the Catholic Church and so they were at Oxford University and they started a Bible club. Uh, I think they called it the Holy Club. And the, their fellow students started making fun of them, kind of picking at them, because they had this set of rules that they were to do these things every day. And they called them Methods. And they started calling them, in kind of in derision, Methodists. And so we have the emergence then of another split, of another group, uh, that would, would be the Methodist denomination. Well, we'll go a little bit further in history. And we find that there was a man named, named uh, Joseph Smith that was in a cave, and he said while he was in that cave, an angel came and appeared to him and had these golden tablets and revealed a latter-day revelation to him. Well, that came to be what we might just generically say the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I tell you, they have some interesting, it would just be nice and say some interesting teachings. One of the things that they were teaching is that um, Adam, remember Adam and Eve, Adam is now the God of this world. You can keep working your way up and eventually reach that state, and Adam was given this world to be the God of. But they also believed, at one, not now, but at one point, they believed that there were people living on the moon that dressed like Quakers and lived to be a thousand years old. And so that, that group has developed and, and some of their teachings has changed, but we again generally call them the Mormons. And, and they also had some failed prophecies about the end of time and, and such, and several of these groups did. There was another group that comes along around 1830, the Adventists. Well, at first they were the Adventists until, uh, there was a failed, um, realization of a, of a prophecy that the, the world is going to end at a certain year, but it didn't happen. And, and so they had to kind of regroup. And a lady named Mary Baker Eady um, kind of rallied the troops. And she said, I had a vision. And in this vision, this dream, there were the Ten Commandments. And the commandment, remember the Sabbath day, had a halo around it. And so she surmised from that that we need to remember the Sabbath day to this day, Saturday. And so they're now called the Seventh Day Adventists. So there's another group on our chart. Well, we go a little bit further down the line and there was a man in London who was doing a lot of work in the slums and he was a military man and he started a group that ended up being the Salvation Army. They predominantly are known for their soup kitchens and things, but they're also a religious group. Interestingly, they don't practice baptism nor the Lord's Supper. But that was Salvation Army. Well, we, we go a little further down the road and, and we find another group comes along called the Christian Scientists around 1875 they have some kind of interesting teachings too. One of which they say that, I don't know if any of you ever had a, a really bad backache or some pain, I mean really bad pain. That's all in your mind. 
It's all in your mind. And death itself is, is a wrong state of mind. And so they have some peculiar teachings to them, and they are known, uh, again, as the Christian scientists, really the Church of Christ scientists, but we generally know them as the Christian scientists. Well, we go a little bit farther down the way, and we find a group that started out, and um, they were, I forget the original name, it was something Bible study. And they started putting out their publications, and they come to be known as the Jehovah's Witness. They have the Watchtower publication that they believe is inspired, by the way. Among the beliefs that they hold, one is that Jesus is not deity, that he's in fact an angel, and he is in fact Michael the archangel. I thought that sad, really, but interesting. How, how do you come up with that? But that's one of their beliefs, and they've had many failed attempts to say when the world was going to end. And so that was in 1879. Then the last group that we'll look at will be the Pentecostal groups. And they are uh, just kind of lump a few together, the Assemblies of God, Church of God, the Holiness. And they believe that we still have some of the modern-day manifestations, miraculous manifestations of the Spirit, speaking in tongues and healings and, and uh, handling of snakes. And Let me tell you this story to, on the side here. Speaking of, Greg said he was going to circulate it that we had a snake handling service at our congregation Wednesday night. And the reason was that on the back of our congregation are, are pews, two pews, one on each side. We have one door there. And uh, most everybody had left, and one of the ladies looked, and she said, what is that? And there was a little snake under the pew. I, I'm, I'm thinking if you know if this had been 30 minutes earlier, we might have cleared the whole building out. But but there was a little snake about that long under the pew, and so I guess we had a little snake handling service because we got that out of there. Uh, didn't kill it, by the way. But uh, anyway, but but there are some groups as part of their service. Some of the uh, Pentecostal groups they'll have a snake handling service, and they will say that Moses had the faith to reach down and pick up the serpent. Remember the story when he was before Pharaoh, he reached down and picked up the serpent. But they don't tell all the story. The whole story is that first they threw a rod down and it became a snake. And then he reached down and picked it up and it became a rod again. And my, my answer to that is, if you take a rod and you throw it down and it becomes a snake, I'll pick it up. Otherwise, I'm not going to. But that, that's here to there. But look at my, my, chart up here, and, and I've got it up here to try to make this point. That's not what the Lord had in mind. And most people that you talk to, you say, you think that's what the Lord had in mind when he prayed in John 17 that we'd all be one? And you look at that, and this is just a few of them. There are hundreds more that we could put up here. In fact, you would not even be able to read this if we put all of them up here, and I wouldn't have the patience to put them all up there either. And you think back to our word, simple. That's just not simple, is it? That's just not where we started. We started down here in A.D. 33 with just one church. The Lord said, I'm going to build it. In fact, the Lord said, I'm going to die for it. I'm going to purchase it with my own blood. And now look what we have. I mentioned to begin with that I was very blessed to be brought up in the church, and I recognized very early that there's something really different about what we do and how we approach things from 
the people that I went to school with and later worked with. And, and it goes, to, I think, to this point. Our plea is this. Our plea is, let's, with the churches of Christ, let's just go back to here. Let's just go back to the simple New Testament Christianity. And, and just let the Scriptures be our guide. All Scriptures given by the inspiration of God, remember, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Well, why? That we might be thoroughly equipped, perfectly equipped to every good work. And we need to learn not to go beyond what is written. Would anybody argue that we have not gone beyond what is written? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And you look at this, and if, you, and if people, I think, would be honest and look at the big pictures, is this what the Lord ever intended? We mentioned this verse earlier. Remember, on the night that the Lord was portrayed, He prayed that His followers would be one, as He and the Father are one. But why did He want that, especially here, that the world may believe that you sent me. A good friend of mine was living and preaching down in Australia. It's a true story. And one of the members had been talking to his neighbor, trying to get his neighbor to come to services, let us study with you. And neighbor just had been resisted. And so he gets the preacher to come to the neighbor's house with him. They're trying to encourage him, you know, meet the preacher and, you know, maybe you'll come. And so they, they get to the door and the neighbor knows why they're there, evidently. And so he just kind of stopped them. He says, let me just tell you. He said, now, I've got a neighbor down the road, just down the street from me, and he's been telling me about this man, Jesus Christ, and what Jesus wants me to do. And you're telling me about this man, Jesus Christ, and, and what he wants me to do, but you're telling me two different things. And the man's conclusion was that Jesus Christ must be a liar. He's telling different people different things. The Lord said we needed to be one that the world may believe that you sent me. For some reason, people have the, the mindset that, that all of this that we put up here is a good thing. Thank God for all the churches a prominent leader said. And yet the Lord said the opposite. It's not a good thing. In fact, it's going to cause a lot of people not to believe. So let me go back now to where we started. And let me try to illustrate it a little bit further in a different way. We talked already about how that um, the Scriptures were to be our guide. And we're to have unity based on God's Word. But the Holy Spirit said there'd be a falling away, and we've illustrated that that has happened over the centuries. I want to look at it this way. Where did we start? We started with, with the Bible. But as we went through our chart, and these different denominations are emerging, every one of them... As far as I know, every one of them have their creed book. We could have put the Nicene Creed next, but and we could have put the Catholic Catechism next, but but um, well, I did put the Nicene. I forgot I had the Nicene Creed up there. Um, we could have put the Catholic Catechism next, but when the Greek Orthodox and the Catholic Church split, why the Greek Orthodox they had to come up, they thought, with their book, so they had have the Greek liturgy, and then as as other groups emerge, like the Lutherans, well, they have Luther's uh, catechism. And then as a, the next group comes along, the Church of England, you've got the, the Book of Common Prayer. Well, why is 
all, why are we having all these? Because if you want to know how to be a good Lutheran, you've got to get their book. Because you can't just take the Bible and it teaches you how to be a good Lutheran. And, and all with the rest of them we could go. The Westminster Confession of Faith are the uh, Hiscock Standard Manual for Baptist Churches. Again, if you want to know how to be a good Baptist, you've got to get their, their creed book and it'll tell you how to do that. Or we could keep going, the Methodist Discipline and the Book of Mormon and uh, the Great Controversy is, is the next one we had on our chart and Chosen to be a Soldier, of course, is Salvation Army, uh, the Science and Health with, with Keys to the Scripture, um, you know, Christian Scientist, and then you've got Truth that Leads to Eternal Life. I believe that was Jehovah's Witness and the Discipline of the Pentecostal Holiness and they added one since, since this. And said, well, well, we started here. We started, we, we've, we've just got all the scripture that's inspired and, and it furnishes us to every good work and we've got these and many, many others. Well, again, you, you look at that and, and you could ask yourself the question, would anybody say that when you look at all these different manuals here and creed books, that it's more than what you find in the Bible? Well, if it's more, it's too much, isn't it? And if it's not as much as what the Bible says, it's too little. And if it's the same as the Bible, why do you need it? And yet we find in Scripture that the Lord said in Matthew 15, verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. If this is more than what the Bible has, then would it not fall to reason that there's some commandments of men in here? And people are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And the end, at the end of Revelation, John wrote, as I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone turns, um, takes away from the words of the prophecy of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And the principle is there and in other places. Don't add to God's word. Don't you take from it. And yet, we see what we have. Well, again, what's our plea? And if you're not a member of the Lord's church and you're here, maybe you're visiting, maybe this is something you haven't thought about before. What if we could, what if we could do this? What if we could just peel all this away? Just, just peel back all the layers. I, I'm not, uh, smart enough to untangle all of that that we've looked at. But I can go back to here. I can just go back to God's Word. Because it's simple. And I can be what they were in the first century. I can do what they did in the first century with what I'm authorized to do from God's Word. And let's just go back to here. That, that's really our plea, isn't it? Let's just speak where the Bible speaks. Let's be silent, for it is silent. We don't seem to maybe hear that as much as we used to. And when you go to God's Word, you'll find that God's Word says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, that's where we want to be. I'm reminded of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah had a very difficult task, didn't he? Jeremiah prophesied before the end of the, uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem. He prophesied before the Babylonians came and he was still around after they came. 
And in between, he's trying to get God's people to repent. He is first trying to get them to save the city if they would repent. And then it was like, well, well, listen, you just go with the Babylonians. God has given the city to the Babylonians. You just go with them. So he was, he had a, very, uh, a message that, that was probably 40 years in the making. And he's trying to get people to turn back to God, and he had his hands full. In fact, the Lord told him, they, they are stubborn people. And in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, he's trying to get them back to just do things like God wants you to do it. So he would say, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Isn't that really our, our plea to this day? Stand in the ways and see. Look at God's Word. Stand there and see. And ask for those old paths. That's where the good way is. Walk in it. It's really simple. Unfortunately, many people have a similar mindset that Jeremiah was running against. And they said, we will not walk in it. I hope that everyone here says, oh no, that's not me. I want to walk in those old paths that we find in God's Word. And that's really... Our plea is simple New Testament Christianity. I appreciate your good attention. Let's, let's um, get ready now to sing the song that's been selected. I've already really said what a person needs to do to be saved, what, what a person needs to do for the Lord to take you, take that precious soul of yours and add it to Him, add it to His body. He said it very simply in Mark 16, as we noticed earlier. Verse 16, he that believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. That's really simple, isn't it? And if we'll put aside everything else you might have heard, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And would you be baptized to have your sins washed away? Like the Apostle Paul was told. What are you waiting for? Ananias would say to Paul, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. You can do that tonight. Might be you've done that. And might be those who tell you once you're saved, you're just always saved. But when you follow the old path, you won't find that. It'll find that it is a journey of faith to the day that we leave this earth. If you've wandered away from that path, perhaps you need to come forward and confessing that and ask the good brethren here to pray with you and for you. But if we can help you in any way to be ready to meet the Lord, let it be known now while together we stand and sing.